So you are all invited to Family Lake Day for tubing. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Okay. My name is Eric. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, we are in the Song of Solomon. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. You can have one of those. If you forgot yours, you can borrow it. We also have sermon notes on all of the communion tables. And if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Version, and you can get the notes on your phone by... Uh, clicking on the zip code or GPS. So why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that uh, your word would penetrate our hearts, Father, and that we wouldn't bring our bias or our prejudice to the scriptures, but that we would allow your word to judge our prejudices, Lord. Father, we pray that you would once again give us a, a picture of what it means to be one with our spouses and to have real intimacy And, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to each one of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Okay, so uh, the last time I preached, we were going through uh, chapter 4, and we got a glimpse into the lover's wedding night. How many of you were here for that? Okay, quite a few of you. Well, if you thought that was steamy, uh, this is going to be interesting. Okay, get ready for this one. This is undoubtedly one of the most erotic texts in all of Scripture. So let me just say, if you have children here and you don't want them to know where they came from, now's a good time to take them to the kids' program. If you're an adult and you were here last time and you were uncomfortable, you might want to join them in the kids' program as well. Um, I just want to give Aaron a special thank you for giving me the two sections in the Song of Solomon that were most likely to get him fired. Uh, after today, I'm pretty certain that my, repu- my reputation is going to be sealed. Uh, we have kind of an inside joke in our GC when it comes to the term garden or gardening now, ever since we started going through the Song of Solomon. And I've been using this iPhone, I mean this phone, uh, uh, this app on my phone and a website to track my diet and exercise along with one of the guys in my gospel community. And whenever one of us records that we spent some time gardening, we always get a reply back with a little smiley face or a question mark. It's like, okay. Um, Let me just remind everybody that the Scripture tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Now, over the last three weeks, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the fighting and the restoration process through the Song of Solomon. Now, every relationship is going to go through struggles as two sinners come together and adjust to become one flesh, to become one essence. And today we're going to focus more on the restoration process, and some would actually call this makeup sex. Now, I'm not sure if that's what this is, but as we've talked about before, one of the primary purposes of sex is to build and strengthen intimacy within marriage. So it makes sense that after going through conflict and emotional separation with your spouse, that sexual consummation as part of the makeup process is necessary, and it's healthy to strengthen the oneness in your marriage. Now, in case you haven't gotten the message yet so far, let me just say it plainly another way. 
God intends that husbands and wives experience true sexual freedom in marriage. God wants couples to be abandoned sexually and to enjoy unrestrained passion and to intoxicate one another with delight. And we see that here in the scriptures. His only boundary, one husband, one wife, in private for the rest of their life. Now, within this context, God encourages freedom exclusively with our mate. We have permission and we are encouraged to be free with our words and to be free with our body and to be free in our mind. But we see that this is only possible when the spouses learn to become servant lovers. And that's really the theme of today's message. Uh, We've seen over the last few weeks how sin and selfishness, it works against this goal. And that's why Jesus has to be at the center of a marriage. Um, He is our example of servant love, true servant love. And we are to imitate him in all of our relationships, especially here in marriage. Now, today, as never before, people are carrying more and more baggage into marriage that needs to be understood and it needs to be worked through. And aside from remarriage and the hurtful past that people often bring to it, couples are getting married. Couples that are um, getting married for the first time are getting married older than ever before. And so they're carrying with them more and more destructive emotional and premarital sexual uh, experiences with them. And as we've seen, being a servant lover doesn't start in the bedroom. But it starts in the process of inevitable conflict and trials and tribulations and the everyday mundane that every couple faces. And that was the overarching message of the last three weeks. But being a servant lover definitely applies to marital sexual intimacy. It applies to that as well. And Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, he says this. He says, Sex is about physical touch, to be sure, but it's about far more than physical touch. It's about what's going on inside us. Developing a fulfilling sex life means I concern myself more with bringing generosity and service to bed than with bringing washboard abdomens. It means that I see my wife as a holy temple of God, not just as a tantalizing human body. It even means that sex becomes a a form of physical prayer, a picture of a heavenly intimacy that rivals the Shekinah glory of old. So that brings us to the text of Scripture. We're in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And it says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Now, these are some of the most difficult verses in the Song of Solomon to interpret. And there definitely is some disagreement among the commentators here. But most believe that this is the woman speaking here. And the imagery that she uses here suggests that she's thinking about and she's desiring a sexual encounter with her husband. Now, the Hebrew word for orchard used here is genat, which means garden. Go figure. Uh, Which we've already seen can refer to a woman's most private body part. Now, this is the only reference in the Song of Solomon to nuts, and most likely walnuts or nut groves. But in extra-biblical literature, they often had sexual connotations. Pomegranates were also commonly viewed as an aphrodisiac in biblical times. So when she says that she went to the nut grove to see if the vines had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed, she's expressing her desire for sexual intimacy and that she wants to explore her husband's body. Now, the exact wording of verse 12 here, it's it's very obscure, but the meaning that is expressed here is strong passion for her husband. 
It's kind of like she's lost in a dream and she's fantasizing about Solomon and she's called back to reality by her friends. Now, wives, take note. It's okay to fantasize about making love to your husband. That's a good thing. Verse 13, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. So this is the first time in the Song of Solomon that she's referred to as Shulamite. Now, this could be interpreted as the feminine form of Solomon, suggesting that she's the other part of Solomon, or Mrs. Solomon, if you will. And the chorus of friends calls her to return so that they may gaze at her beauty. But her thoughts show that she longs to be reunited with her husband. She has other things in mind. Being with her husband is a priority. And she basically says, sorry, girlfriends, but I have more important things to do today. And where I'm going, you don't want to come. And I don't want you to come either. So to put what's happening here in a broader context, Solomon had approached her many times and often at the wrong times to make love, and she had refused him. She wakes up in chapter 5 to find that Solomon's not with her, and she has a dream that creates in her this desire to make love to her husband. So Solomon shows up in chapter 6, and he assures her of his love regardless of her performance. And then Solomon returns to the palace, and she goes down to the garden to be with her thoughts. And there she begins to think about Solomon, and her desire for him is rekindled, and then she seeks him out. And so um, she finds him finally, and then in the next verses, she initiates lovemaking with him. And even though much of their problem was Solomon's fault, she assumed responsibility for her own behavior. And we saw at the end of chapter 5 that she changed her attitude. And now what we're going to see is that she changes her actions. So she's now the one speaking. And she's speaking here with the intention of teasing Solomon. She says, Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon the dance before two armies? She's being coy here. And as we'll see in the following verses, she's actually performing an erotic dance for her husband. Now, the dance before two armies or two companies is a translation of the Hebrew word mahanaim. And um, the dance, uh, it's, kind of trans- it's translated that way actually in the NIV. Now, mahanaim was the place where Jacob's company met Esau's army. And it was also the place where Jacob wrestled with the angel back in Genesis chapter 32. Now, it's uncertain what the meaning is of some of these references, but what is clear here is that this is an ancient striptease that she performs for her husband. I'm just the messenger. (laughs) We saw in chapter 4 how Solomon had affirmed how beautiful she was to him. He was verbally generous as a servant lover, and he spoke the words that she needed to hear. And now what we're about to see is that she is visually generous as a servant lover who understands his needs as a man. He is verbally generous and she is he is verbally generous and she is visually generous to him. Now I want to stop here for a moment and, and just give you a little background on men and tell you why this is important. Now, it's not news to anybody that men and, diff- men and women are different, right? Everybody knows that. Um, but most of us, uh, we understand that men are more visually stimulated than women. So that's not really anything new. But what does it really mean? So it's really unclear for a lot of people. Now, there's a lady. Her name is Shanti Feldhan, and she wrote a bestseller called 
for women only, what you need to know about the inner lives of men. And she had some really good insights in this book. Now, she's a Christian. She's a Harvard graduate. And she has a background in economics, among other things. And in her national clinical research, she surveyed men, Christian and non-Christian men, to get honest feedback about how men think and feel about various relational and sexual issues, about what really makes them tick. And in chapter 6 of her book, it's titled Keeper of the Visual Rolodex. Does anybody here still use a Rolodex? Anybody? A few people. I had a feeling you would raise your hand. Um, if you're too young to know what a Rolodex is, it's a manual card filing system that uh, the ancients used before personal computers and smartphones. <laughs> Today we would call this a visual hard drive or, or like flash storage or flash memory. Now, in the book, she shares her findings about what it means when we say that men are visual. And this is what she says she stumbled upon. She says, even happily married men are instinctively pulled to visually consume attractive women. And these images can be just as alluring whether they are live or recollected. Let me read it again. Even happily married men are instinctively pulled to visually consume attractive women. And these images can be alluring whether they are live or recollected. Her statistics show that nearly all men, 98 plus percent, would be described as visual. Some are highly visual, some are moderately visual, and some are minimally visual. Now this is compared to approximately 25 percent of women who consider themselves as being visual. So ladies, if you're in that 25%, this may not sound surprising to you. But what if you're in that other 75%? This is probably a mystery to you. And you could even see it as a personal failure on your part to keep your husband's attention or a personal betrayal on his part to ha have eyes only for you. But we need to understand this a little bit better. And so in describing what this means, she says that two things surfaced that she didn't understand before. Two things. And the first one was... A woman who is dressed to show off a great body is an eye magnet that is incredibly difficult to avoid. And even if a man forces himself not to look, he is keenly aware of her presence. Basically, most men can't not want to look at a beautiful woman. They can't not want to look. Now, this doesn't mean that he prefers them to his wife. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that he can't help but notice a beautiful woman. And this in itself is not a sin. But what he does with that image will determine whether or not he sins. And this represents a significant battle for Christian men, those who want to honor God in their thought life and those who want to honor their wives as their standard of beauty. Now, one faithful believing husband that was interviewed, he confessed this. He says, If I see a woman with a gray body walk into a Home Depot and I close my eyes or turn away until she passes... For the next half hour, I'm keenly aware that she's in there somewhere. I'm ashamed to say more than once I've gone looking down the aisle hoping to catch a glimpse. Now, Terry has come home from the grocery store on several occasions surprised that men are following her around the produce aisles. And I just laugh. I'm like, that's my wife, by the way. I'm not surprised at all. You know, it's just amazing to me that, you know, she's surprised by it. But uh, I have started doing most of the grocery shopping now, just, just to be safe, because you never know. Uh, another guy, he, he put it this way. He says, if you're nearsighted, everything is fuzzy without glasses. With your glasses, everything is in sharp focus. If a babe walks into Starbucks, other women sort of see fuzzy. All they see is that a woman is there. 
but all the men in the room suddenly have their glasses on and that woman is in sharp focus and it's really hard not to stare at her. Now, for most guys, this initial response, is, it's not only unintentional, but it's also automatic. If the stimulus is there, a beautiful woman, so is the response. And this response can come associated with some powerful feelings. There's this short-term pleasure that men actually get and they receive by looking at a beautiful woman. Now, this is not primarily sexual. It's not. It's instinctive and it is physical, but it's not necessarily a sexual thing. The difference is admiring her beauty, kind of like you would a classic car or a sunset, versus thinking, I want to go to a motel. So it's not really sexual in that sense. The second thing that she says she uh, realized that she didn't understand before is that even when no real eye magnet is present, each man has a mental Rolodex of stored images from adolescence to today which can pop up into his thoughts without warning or could be called up at will. Now, it's been said that half of the male population thinks about sex all of the time. But what's really happening here is they're not so much thinking about sex as they are picturing it or picturing a sensual image. And unfortunately for husbands, these images aren't always of their wives. Where do they come from? These are mental snapshots that have been burned in, into their minds and that have been accumulated in the minefield of today's culture. And they can go all the way back to boyhood, from five-second sensual TV commercials to billboards, lingerie catalogs, magazine and other types of ads, and especially the Internet and explicit pornography. But they could be just about anything. They could be a, a memory of an intimate moment with their spouse, which is a good thing. Or they could be uh, the memory of an illicit website, which is a bad thing. Uh, it could be the recollection of the woman that was walking through the parking lot just a few minutes ago. Or it could be the girl who sat next to them in ninth grade algebra 15 years ago. And boom, there she is again. Surprise. <laughs> to be sure, these images can also be recalled on purpose. There's no doubt about that. They can be called on demand. And there's a virtually unending supply in the brain stretching all the way back to the teen years. Now, how often this happens, it depends on the guy. For a teenage boy, thinking about sex all the time means all the time. Um, it would be unusual for him to go a couple of hours without having an involuntary image pop up into his head. And when he does, he could easily spend 30 minutes on that subject. But as they get older, most guys, they, they tend to be able to get a handle on this to the point where those involuntary thoughts are usually triggered by something. And when they are, for the minimally visually guys, it's a little more than a nuisance. But for those that are more visual, it could take them great effort to tear them down. So this is just the way that men are built. And these basic impulses, again, they are not sin. They're normal. There is a difference between temptation and between sin. In Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. What we do with those temptations is the real issue. Every man can choose to either dwell on those images and thoughts or to d dismiss them. Now, most Christian men that I know, are extreme, they, they take this extremely seriously. And they rigorously try to take every unwanted thought captive to obey Christ, as the scriptures tell us. And if it were possible, they would shut off that temptation to look at other women in a second. Now, you know, God had described Job as the finest man on all the earth in Job 1.8. 
And yet Job had said that he had made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So let me ask, why would the finest man in all of the earth need to do that? Because he was a man. That's the way he was built. Why is what you need to understand about your husband's temptation in this area is that it's not because of you. And it doesn't impact his feelings and his love for you. Even if you were a bikini model, he would still be vulnerable to this temptation. For most men, the visual stimulus that they get from everyday experiences, they're just observations that register. But then they're offset and they're discarded compared to the relationship that they have with their loving wife. So, women, what can you do to help? What can you do to help? First, don't judge him for being a man. That's the way God made him, and God does not make mistakes. Spend your energy trying to help him fight those temptations that the culture throws at us instead of fighting him. Don't say, well, Eric said you were a pervert. What are you thinking about now? (laughs) Don't say that. Don't do that. Ask him questions with the intention of truly understanding his struggle. And if he's transparent with you, don't freak out. Don't freak out about it. It's vital that you try to understand and appreciate just how much strength and how much discipline it takes for your man to make the right choices in his thought life um, when he's bombarded by what's in our culture. The second thing, champion modesty in yourself and in others. Champion modesty in yourself and in others. A lot of women are clueless about this problem, and they become contributors to it. Now, there are some guys that are just sickos, and no matter what you wear, they're going to have lustful thoughts. There's nothing that you can do about that. Um, But because women mostly aren't visual, they don't understand what they may be doing by the way they dress to other men. Now, many women and young girls, they're just looking for male love or or male attention and not realizing that this is the wrong kind of, of attention and it's nothing to do with love at all. So, ladies, it's natural to want to look good and, and to be noticed. That's natural. But your Christian brothers, especially those who are married, they don't want you in their mental Rolodex. You could be cluttering up a good husband's mind and tempting him to dishonor his wife. The third thing you can do, let him know that you're on his side and that you are here to support him. How can you do that? Be visually generous. Be visually generous to your husband. Let him be captivated by you. If your husband wants to see, let him see. So let me ask you a question. Lights on or lights off? Husbands. On. Every husband should know the answer to that question. When you bathe, you don't go into the bathroom and lock the door. When you're changing, you don't go into the closet and hide. Don't hide from it. Oneness is the ability to be naked and not be ashamed. When you're together intimately, if he wants to see, let him see. Give him as many redeemed snapshots of you as you can. Fill his mind with images that he can think about and that he can meditate on and that he can revisit often. This is healthy, and this promotes his desire for you. And this is one important way that you can help him make you his standard of beauty. And it gives him strength to discard those unwanted images and impulses when they pop up. So, all of that said, this brings us back to the text of Scripture, Song of Solomon, where the wife here in chapter 6, verse 13, she is exceedingly visually generous to her husband. And she says... Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? 
she's toying with him here playfully as she sways before him. And she asks, Solomon, why are you staring at me? And she knows exactly why he's, star- she's, he's staring at her. She, he's captivated by her. And she knows it. Maybe she just wants to hear again how much he loves every part of her. And she wants him to describe it again. In verse, uh, in, in verse 7, 1, it's the beginning of another wasp like we saw back in chapter 4, where he described her body parts from head to toe in beautiful, poetic language. And we see here again that Solomon affirms and he encourages his wife in her sensuality. He serves and he loves her by being verbally generous and she, him, by being visually generous. Each of the lovers here serves the other by loving them in a way that meets their different needs. And so this time Solomon, he starts at the bottom as she dances before him and works his way up. And so she's obviously either nude or wearing extremely transparent clothing because once again, Solomon can see her entire body. Here we are, chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon speaking, he says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. The first thing he says is that her feet are beautiful. Maybe it was the movement, or maybe it was the steps of her feet, or maybe it was just the cute feminine shape that was visible through her sandals. He says, your feet look beautiful in those shoes. Now, guys, take note of this. I don't really understand it, but he compliments her shoes. That's an important thing. you got to remember that. And then by calling her noble daughter or prince's daughter, he evokes an atmosphere of royalty here. And as he watches her sway in motion, he says that the curves of her thighs are like exquisite craftsmanship and beautiful symmetry. In verse 2, he says, your navel, your, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. So as he works his way up, he gets to the place that's like a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Now, If this is really her belly button, then it indicates that she must have had some sort of severe traumatic injury, kind of like a a chariot accident, and she has this gaping, wounded navel. The The translators really had a hard time with this one. It's like, we can't say that. You know, actually, I, ha- I had the word that's more appropriate here, and as Terry was reading my, my draft, she said, you can't say that. So I, I took it out. Um, but it's pretty certain here that the word, the Hebrew word, shor, S-H-O-R, which literally means umbilical cord, does not refer to her navel, but her most intimate place, once again, between the rounded thighs that he had just described. And as she dances, Solomon says that her shore looks like a rounded goblet, or literally a bowl in the shape of a half moon. Once again, given the sequence that he, that he follows and that he describes his wife's body, this, this makes much more sense here. Now, the description, never lacks mixed wine, speaks of a constant source of sexual pleasure. And it refers to the mixing of his pleasure with hers. And then he goes on and he comments on the shape and the color of her stomach as being like a bundle of wheat that was tied at the center and that was yellow, yellowish white after being threshed and winnowed. Uh, verse 3, he says, Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Now we saw this back in chapter 4, but for those of you who missed it, he compares her breasts to two small furry woodland animals. <laughs> and uh, again, if your wives, if your husband said that to you today, I'm sure you wouldn't be like, say it again, say it again. <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't be doing that. 
But what he's really saying is that her breasts, they're graceful and they're playful and they're soft and they were inviting to touch and to caress. Verse 4. Verse 4. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks towards Damascus. Why is that funny? Yeah. <laughs> Solomon likes her long neck, and he praised how it was decorated back in chapter 4. Here, maybe her hair is swept up, and he compares it to an ivory uh, tower of ivory that's stately and that's smooth. And the pools of Heshbon were these deep cisterns that were hewn out of solid rock. And there's an image here of calmness and of tranquility. And it's an invitation to contemplation and to immersion. And as he gazes into the depths of her eyes, he feels peaceful. That's what he's saying here. And once again, much more than an impersonal and impersonal sexual act, he wants to penetrate the depths of her personality and of her soul. And then he gets to her nose, and he says that it reminds him of Barbara Streisand, her being long and bent with a mind of its own. No, that's not what it means. It means that it, it could either be uh, that it was straight like the Tower of Lebanon or that it was fragrant and, and pale, one of those. In verse 5, he says, Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Finally, he praises her beautiful face and her head that crowns, it's a crowning feature of the rest of her body. And like Mount Carmel, juts out into the Mediterranean Sea and crowns Palestine. And he says that her loving, her, um, he loves her long flowing hair. Now, purple is a royal color, and purple dye was very expensive. And so she could have actually dyed her hair purple, which would have been fitting for the queen. And it seems to have also been quite a turn on for the king, because he says that her hair can make the po- most powerful man weak. In verse 6, he says, How beautiful and how pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. As Solomon praises and as he affirms the various parts of her body from toe to head, he's overwhelmed once again as he takes in the image of her whole being. And he tells her just how much he enjoys looking at all of her with all of her delights. And then he continues to describe those delights and his desire for them. In verse 7, he says, Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. He says that her frame is slender and it's flexible like a palm tree swaying gracefully in the wind. And then he mixes two images of fruit, the date palm and the grapevine, to say to his wife, I want you now. He's ready to climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. She, too, is obviously excited here. Her body is visibly ready for intimacy, like the ripened clusters of the vine, ready to yield the best wine possible. He longs not only to taste her breast, but her breath, which is deliciously scented with apples, like one of the best vintage wines. So, (laughs) Solomon, he's beside himself here with desire. His wife has captivated him by dancing seductively before him. She knows that God has, had created him to be aroused through his eyes. And she is exceedingly visually generous to her husband as a servant lover. And this incredible dance then climaxes in exquisite lovemaking. And as the two of them lie there together, 
in oneness, she speaks here and she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She takes pleasure in knowing that her lovemaking is completely satisfying to her husband. She says that the wine or that the sexual pleasure goes down smoothly. And just as wine causes the body to relax and to drift into sleep, so their love has left them sweetly exhausted and ready to fall asleep in each other's arms. And she speaks in verse 10, and she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She says, I belong to him. He desires me, and I am blessed. Undoubtedly, this text in Scripture raises some questions and maybe some concerns or even discomfort in many people's minds. But let me just say, once again, we shouldn't judge Scripture by our bias and by our prejudices, but we should let Scripture judge our prejudices. This is an example of what's called a descriptive text. It tells us what happened. This is not a prescriptive text. It's not a thou shalt dance for your husband type of text. There won't be sign-ups in the back after service for dance lessons. I promise you. Husbands, you can't tell your wives when you get home, the Bible says you should dance for me. Now would be a good time. No, you can't. This is an example of servant lovers expressing sexual freedom in the exclusiveness of marriage. It's an example of a sexually free wife serving her, her husband in a way that affirms him and, and administers to him as a man. He is verbally generous and, and he serves her by affirming his wife to the point that she is confident in his desire for her. And she is free to be visually generous and even a bit adventurous because she's secure in her husband's love for her. So husbands, you hold the key to your wife's passion and sexual freedom. Once again, you have to go first as a servant lover. It's only when she's confident that you are completely committed and devoted to her that she can be completely free and passionate with you. Ladies, your body is an incredible gift. Your husband may not be able to express it well, but your sexual relationship is vitally important to him. More than you may think and maybe even more than he may realize. Knowing that you're passionate about him is the key to unlocking his emotions. And it's the key to his well-being and satisfaction as a man as well. Everything else around him could be falling apart and failing. But knowing that you desire him physically and are affirming him sexually gives him the confidence to handle the rest of the world with no problem. Lastly, let me just say, there are many, many reasons why couples don't experience this type of sexual freedom and oneness. And we've talked about most of those already through this series. Things like just plain selfishness, discouragement or the lack of affirmation, porn addiction, abuse, guilt over the past, poor body image or fear of rejection or embarrassment, performance issues, and even religious modest, modesty among other things. But you may not be at a place in your marriage now where you are able to be this sexually free. You may have to work through some of these issues before you can truly be free in your words and free in your body and free in your mind. And that's okay. But it starts with embracing God's perspective of sex, which we're seeing here in the Song of Solomon. And then by learning to serve your spouse by giving your body to them as the great gift that it is. And then finally, by being willing to demonstrate your freedom by th through and by new actions, by taking a risk a leap of faith. For some, this may be years down the road, 
But what you can do is set prayerful goals now to move in the direction that God intends for your marital intimacy with your spouse, to become sexually free servant lovers, to be able to be naked and not ashamed as one flesh. People, we cannot ignore the message of the Song of Solomon. It's important to see how human love and sexuality fits into the big story of God's plan revealed to us in the Bible. We must look at the whole of Scripture and apply it to our lives, especially the parts that make us uncomfortable. Now, the Bible, it's filled with fertile gardens and with abundant vegetation. It started in the Garden of Eden with this perfect intimacy between God and man and woman and perfect harmony with all of creation. And it ends with a new Jerusalem with, at its center has a river of life lined with trees and, and it has um, leaves and, that produce food and they're healing. And in between those, there are two crucial gardens, the Garden of the Passion and the Garden of the Resurrection. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus' decision to obey the Father reversed the course of human history. And also the Garden where Jesus died and where He was buried and where He was raised from the dead to show us that we too can die and we can be buried in the ground like a seed and we can have the possibility of breaking through that soil once again and have new life. But also in this wonderfully risky place between Eden and between New Jerusalem, we find the garden of the Song of Songs like we see here. And we see a blossoming love that recaptures something of Eden and it foreshadows something of the New Jerusalem. And we see that it's only when we lay down our lives as servant lovers and that we look to be welcomed into intimacy that we can begin to reflect divine love. It's the love of God who, having banished his creatures from a garden, quietly enters the gardens of suffering and death in order to woo his beloved back to himself and to have her welcome him back into his arms, into her arms eagerly. It's the love of God who, like like the woman here in, in 710. She says, I am my beloved. He binds himself to his people in marriage covenant, and he promises to be devoted to them. And he says in Leviticus 26:12, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. We, are, as his bride, we are still waiting for that final wedding day. And it may be some time coming, but we can rest assured that it definitely will the band's going to come back up, and as they do, we're going to worship God as we do every week by taking communion. And as we take that cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us. And we remember that he has He died for our sins so that we can be one, so that we can experience intimacy with him once again. And so that we can be reconciled also to one another. And so that in all of our relationships, we can reflect God's glory. And then we're going to worship God through song as the band uh, plays. And we're going to worship God through giving. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the very back. We give back to God because he's given so much to us. And we encourage you to worship God by hanging out afterward and and getting to know one another, greet one another, and um, encourage one another after the service as well. So let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the message, Lord, this morning. Um, it may be difficult for some of us to hear. Father, I pray that we might see how your word applies to all of our lives, Lord. And we know that without you, Jesus, as our example, we would not know what it means to, to love and to give and to forgive. So, Lord, I pray that you would be at the center of our hearts, those that are married, married couples, as well as those who are single. Father, for those whose marriages uh, are struggling right now, I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would fill them with your power, your ability to lay down their lives and to be able to serve one another. And for those that are single, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them, Lord, to be honoring to you in their thoughts, in their mind, and to look forward to the day where they can experience that human love and sexuality, Father, in marriage if that be your will. Today, we pray that you would speak to us and that we would learn how to apply these things. In Jesus' name, amen.